everyone. Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers without self-control. Brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. And from such people turn away. Paul instructed Timothy and so God instructs us. Down through history, oppressive governments have ruled denying basic rights, justice, and due process to citizens. Often such governments making a pretext of acting in the best interests of the people have persecuted the weak, the law-abiding, and the righteous while rewarding and engaging in criminal behavior. One of the most significant events prophesied in the Bible for the end of this age is the rise of the beast as it's called in scripture. And the subject for today's sermon is the rise of the beast. Most people at all familiar with the Bible know that somewhere in the Bible, something called the beast is mentioned. But there are a variety of ideas about what or who the beast is. And we need to know what the Bible says about the identity of the beast and especially what the Bible says about how we and all mankind will be affected in the perhaps not too dear, far distant future. Several years ago, I gave a sermon titled, Who is the Beast? Covering certain aspects of this question. There's a lot more to the subject of the beast as revealed in scripture than was covered in that sermon, and I'm not going to attempt to restate everything that was said in the previous sermon on that subject today, but we need to cover some basic information regarding the beast as a foundation for today's subject. In Re Revelation 17, beginning with verse 1, Revelation 17, verse 1, it says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, this is talking about the plagues that are to be poured out at the end time. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me saying to me, come and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead, a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood 
of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. But the angel said to me, why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. In this prophecy, we see a woman, an unfaithful woman, sitting on a beast with seven heads and ten horns. On the forehead of the woman, which is the seat of intellect, of the mind, and the will, is a name. And it's a name that is a mystery from the Greek word mysterion, or mysterion is actually how it would be pronounced more correctly in the Greek. This Greek word implies knowledge hidden from many but known to others, particularly to those who are of a particular group or groups to whom the meaning of the mystery is known. So this name implies knowledge that is not generally known, but is known to some. The name continues, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. In the Bible, a church is often spoken of metaphorically as a woman. For example, in Acts 7 and verse 38, Acts 7 and verse 38, Stephen, who had been ordained a deacon in the church and who had been accused of blasphemy, is quoted as he testified in his defense before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Council. And Stephen was speaking of Moses when he said, this is he, that is Moses, who was in the congregation, or it could be translated church. In fact, I think it is translated church in the King James Version. The Greek word is ecclesia. Moses, who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us. The term church in the wilderness, as it is in the King James, referred to is the people or the nation of Israel. So Israel was not only a nation, but it was also a church, a congregation. And elsewhere, Israel is spoken of as the wife of God in a metaphorical sense. So Israel, the church, the nation, is a woman, in, um, again, in a metaphorical sense in her relationship to God. God said to Israel, in Jeremiah 3 and verse 14, I am married to you. I am married to you. In Ezekiel 16, Israel is portrayed as a wife who becomes a harlot, having illicit relations with foreign nations and with idols. In Jeremiah 3 and verse 20, Jeremiah 3 and verse 20, we read, Surely as a wife treacherously departs from her husband, so you have dealt treacherously with me. O house of Israel, says the Lord. So we see that a woman is often portrayed in Scripture in a metaphorical sense, or, or a, a church is portrayed in a metaphorical sense as a woman, and Israel in the, in the, as the church in the wilderness is likened to a woman and also to a harlot, to a wife who is unfaithful. The New Testament church is also spoken of as a woman. 
and she is called the wife of Christ, having entered into a marriage covenant with him in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 2, 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 2. For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed, or as it is in the King James Version, espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. The word espouse means, as uh, it says in the American Heritage Dictionary, to take in marriage, to marry, or to give a woman in marriage. That's the meaning of the word espouse. And we read in Easton's Bible Dictionary, Easton's Bible Dictionary, quote, the espousal was a ceremony of betrothing, a formal agreement between the parties then coming under obligation for the purpose of marriage. Espousals are in the East frequently contracted years before the marriage is celebrated. It is referred to as figuratively illustrating the relations between God and his people. And we read from the International Bible, Standard Bible Encyclopedia, International Bi Standard Bible Encyclopedia, quote, betrothal with the ancient Hebrews was of a more formal and far more binding nature than the engagement is with us. Indeed, it was esteemed a part of the transaction of marriage and that the most binding part among the Arabs today, it is the only legal ceremony connected with marriage. And it further states from the same source, the betrothed parties were legally in the position of a married couple and unfaithfulness was adultery. So one who is betrothed to Christ is married to him is married to him and the church is married to Christ and in a sense we as individuals are married to Christ again in a metaphorical sense as part of the church in Matthew 22 the period after Christ returns to the earth is portrayed as a wedding feast in Revelation 19 beginning verse 7 Revelation 19 and verse 7, the church is spoken of as having made herself ready to receive Christ at his coming as his wife at the time of his second coming. And the church is pictured there, the, the church that is pictured there is composed of the faithful. As we read in Revelation 19 and verse 8, Revelation 19 and verse 8 it says, says to her, that is to the wife, the church, was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So the church is arrayed in fine linen, which would be presumed to be uh, white in color, and it uh, symbolizes the righteous acts of the saints in this case. And I've written more about the subject of the marriage supper in an article titled Marriage Feast Parables, at, which is available at our website, cogmessenger.org. So we see that the bride that is ready to receive Christ at his second coming, his wife, is arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. 
But the woman we read about in Revelation 17 is a harlot who's dressed in purple and scarlet. And she has, as we read in her hand, a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornications, which implies sexual relations or illicit relations, including sexual sins and idolatry. And this is a false church of worldwide influence. In Revelation 18, it says of this same system of false religion called Babylon the Great, Revelation 18, verse 23, Revelation 18, verse 23, speaking of this false system, it says, by your sorcery, all the nations were deceived. All the nations were deceived through this system of false religion and government. In verse 1 of Revelation 17, Revelation 17, verse 1, we read that, it, that this harlot sits on many waters. And the angel who spoke to John explained in Revelation 17 and verse 15 what this means, Revelation 17, verse 15, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. So this is a globe-girdling system. And this same woman is, as we read in verse 3 of Revelation 17, sitting on a scarlet beast, which is full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Now in Daniel 7, a series of beasts is spoken of, and one was like a lion, another like a bear, and another was like a leopard, and a fourth a dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. And that fourth was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns, ten horns. So here is a series of beasts, but they are beasts in a metaphorical sense. In other words, they're not literal lions and bears and leopards. They are beasts in a metaphorical sense. They are like these creatures. And in the interpretation given to Daniel by the angelic being, it was explained in Daniel 7 and verse 17, Daniel 7 verse 17, those great beasts which are four are four kings which arise out of the earth. So they are kings represented metaphorically as beasts. And in these prophecies, the words for king and kingdom are used interchangeably. Sometimes the term beast refers to a kingdom. Sometimes it may refer to a king ruling over a kingdom. For example, you can compare the statement in Daniel 7 and verse 17 where it says the beasts are four kings with verse 23 where it says the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different from all other kingdoms. So you can, uh, depending on the context, it could be referring to a specific king involved with these entities or the kingdom itself. And these beasts of Daniel 7 are synonymous with the vision of Daniel 2, 
where Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had a vision interpreted by Daniel as four successive powerful kingdoms, beginning with the Babylonian kingdom under Nebuchadnezzar. In Daniel 8, the second kingdom of these four kingdoms is identified as the Medo-Persian kingdom, and the third of the four, the Greek kingdom under Alexander, which was then broken up into four lesser kingdoms spun off from his empire after his death. The fourth kingdom of Daniel 7 is the Roman Empire, which conquered and absorbed the four Grecian kingdoms along with other territories in Europe, Asia, and Africa. Each of these kingdoms that we read about in these chapters we've discussed had worldwide influence in their days and they still exert significant influence in today's world. The fourth kingdom of Daniel 7, representing the Roman Empire, had ten horns, as we saw. And these ten horns arise from or out of this fourth kingdom. Among the horns of Daniel 7, there also came up what is referred to as a little horn. In Daniel 7 and verse 8, Daniel 7 and verse 8, I was, look, I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. And then it goes on in verse 20 of Daniel 7. Verse 20, it says, The ten horns that were on its head, the head of this fourth beast, and the other horn which came up before which three fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth which speaks pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. Skipping down to verse 24, it says, The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom, and another shall rise after them. So these horns are also kings or kingdoms arising from this beast power. And it goes on to say in verse 24, another shall rise after them, after the ten, or along with the ten, and he shall be different from the first ones and shall subdue three kings. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall perse persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time, which is three and a half years. So, ten kingdoms arise out of the fourth beast. Another horn representing kings or a kingdom arises and subdues three of the ten, and the saints are given over him to him for a time, times, and half a time, or three and a half years, which in uh, prophecy is equal to 1260 days, or on the day for a year principle, 1260 years, because in prophecy a month consists of 60 days. So, 42 months or a time times and half a time is 1260 days or 1260 years. 
depending on the circumstances and the context. In Revelation 13, we read again, beginning with verse one, then I stood on the sand of the sea and saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and 10 horns and on his horns, 10 crowns and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear and his mouth like the mouth of the lion. Now notice that these are the same creatures that are mentioned in Daniel 7 in connection with the, with the kings or kingdoms. And it says the dragon gave him his power, his throne and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it were, had been mortally wounded and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshiped the dragon who gave authority to the beast and they worshiped the beast saying, who is able to make war against him? And the dragon is a symbol for Satan, the devil, as we read in Revelation 12, verse 9. Revelation 12, verse 9, the, the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. So the, the dragon, which is the power behind this beast, is Satan. It is his kingdom, and he rules over it. He controls it. And as it says in verse 4 here that we read in Revelation 13, they worshiped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like the beast and who is able to make war with him? Actually, the nations have been worshiping Satan since the time of the Garden of Eden, often without necessarily realizing who they're worshiping because he disguises himself quite often and he's got a lot of disguises, but nevertheless, he's worshiped. This beast that is mentioned in Revelation 13, you'll notice is a composite of all the beasts referred to in Daniel 7 with seven heads, the Babylonian one head, the Medo-Persian one head, the Greek four heads, the Roman one head, seven heads altogether. And in the Roman Empire, all these heads are represented as the final successor to them all. It says, one of the heads was mortally wounded. As we read in verse three, one of the heads, I saw one of the heads as if it had been mortally wounded and his deadly wound was healed. The Roman Empire suffered a mortal wound when the last of the Roman emperors to rule in Rome, Romulus Augustus, Augustulus was deposed by the king of the Germanic tribe called Heruli in 476 AD. As Rome declined, three kingdoms became dominant in the western part of the empire. Beginning in 429 AD, a Germanic tribe called the Vandals began conquering large portions of the Western Roman Empire. In 455 AD, the Vandals sacked Rome and continued to rule over large portions of the Western Roman Empire 
until they were destroyed and scattered to the winds in a series of battles initiated by the Byzantine Roman Emperor Justinian I in the years 533 and 534. Now, I might mention that the Roman Empire had uh, established itself divided, more or less, between east and west. Rome, of course, was the western capital. So the Vandals were one of these kingdoms. The Vandals had sacked Rome and taken much of the territory of the Western Roman Empire and occupied it. Odoacer, king of the Heruli, who had taken over Rome in 476, was killed in 493 by the Ostrogothic king Theodoric. Many of the remaining Heruli were slaughtered by Theodoric's forces. Thus, the Ostrogoths became the rulers of Rome and what was left of the Roman Empire in the west, along with the Vandals. And the Ostrogoths were defeated by a Roman army set up by Justinian in 541. But they later rebelled and were permanently defeated in 554 after several battles. With these victories, we read in, in a history of this era on a, on a website, on a, in, a, in an article called Goths, Franks, and Just, Justinian's Empire, 476 to, to 610. This is on a website called sand.beck.org. But it states in this article, with this victory in 554, quote, imperial authority was restored in Italy south of the Po, which is a river in Italy, and the north was gradually recovered. So with this restoration and subsequent uh, changes, the deadly wound was healed with the reestablishment of imperial authority over Rome and Italy. And it was to continue for, as we read, a time and times and half a time or 42 months. Again, one month of 30 days times 12, which is the number of months in a year, is 360 days, and 42 months is 1,260 days. A time is a year of 360 days. Times is two times, and half a time is half of a year for a total of 1,260 days. And there are various uh, scriptures which uh, explain or use those figures so we can make that determination. Of the 1,260 prophetic years, 554, which is the time of the imperial restoration, plus 1,260 brings us to 1814. 1814 was the year of Napoleon's defeat and the end of 1,260 years of rule by the Holy Roman Empire, as it was called. This Roman system dominated Europe continually from the time of the imperial restoration of 554 to Napoleon's defeat in 1814. Now, during the early era of the professing church, there was great controversy and enmity between the Trinitarians, those who believed in the Trinity, who dominated in Rome and Constantinople, 
and another group called the Arians who did not accept the Trinity doctrine. All three of these empires, all three of these empires that we read about that invaded and conquered Rome were Arians who often persecuted Trinitarians within the realm of their empires. Otto Acer, the Heruli king, was an Arian. The Vandals were, the Ostrogoths were as well. They were all uh, Arians. And so they were, in a, in a sense, even though they were all considered themselves Christians, they were enemies of each other, the Trinitarians and the Arians, and each one was trying to often destroy the other. So these three Arian kingdoms de declared heretics by the Trinitarian Catholic Church were plucked up by the roots. Pope John I was sent by the Ostrogothic King Theodoric to go from Rome to Constantinople in 525 to 526 AD in a bid to force the Byzantine Emperor Justinian to moderate his policy of repression against heretics, including the Arian Ostrogoths. And the Pope reluctantly went under pressure from Theodoric. When he arrived, Pope John I arrived in Constantinople, the Pope was enthusiastically re received. As we read in the Catholic Encyclopedia, quote, the Emperor Justin or Justinian on meeting him prostrated himself and sometime afterward he had himself crowned by the Pope. He had himself crowned by the Pope. And he was the first Holy Roman Emperor, as they were called. Now it was said that the little horn of Daniel 7 would have a mouth speaking pompous words. Here's what Pope John first, uh, Pope John the first wrote to Justinian, quote, John, Bishop of the city of Rome, to his most illustrious and merciful son Justinian, among the conspicuous reasons for praising your wisdom and gentleness, most Christian of emperors, and one which radiates light as a star is the fact that through love of the faith and actuated by zeal for charity, you, learned in ecclesiastical discipline, have preserved reverence for the see of Rome, reverence for the see of Rome, and have sub subjected all things to its authority. you have subjected all things to the authority of the papacy, the See of Rome. And future popes would make similar claims that everyone and everything is subject to their authority. There are a number of quotes from various sources that will confirm that. From that time on, the Holy Roman emperors, as they were called, were crowned by the pope and as we've seen, it was prophesied that a woman would ride the beast. Over the course of that period of 1260 years, the Holy Roman Empire had gone through a succession of five revivals. These five revivals, are, each one is 
is uh, represented by one of those 10 horns that we read about earlier in Revelation 13. The first was the government of Justinian, which eventually fell apart, followed later on by the Frankish kingdom, Charlemagne being crowned Holy Roman Emperor in 800 AD by Pope Leo III. The third government to succeed in that line of succession was the German Holy Roman Empire beginning with Otto, the first in 962 AD. And following that was the Austrian Habsburg dynasty which began to reign in 1438 as the Holy Roman Empire. Then followed, following later was, in the fifth one was the French Empire under Napoleon, who was crowned the Holy Roman Emperor. And that empire was crushed with his defeat in 1814, as we mentioned earlier. The emperors of the Holy Roman Empire, dominated by the papacy in Rome, generally cooperated with the popes. At times they were forced to, and at other times they, they cooperated voluntarily. And in Revelation 17 and verse 18, where we read about this woman, it says, the woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth, which reigns over the kings of the earth. Pope Nicholas I, who reigned from, as Pope from uh, 858 to 67, is quoted as saying, fear then our wrath and the thunders of our vengeance. For Jesus Christ has appointed us, that is as popes, with his own mouth, absolute judges of all men. And kings themselves are submitted to our authority. Other popes and their supporters have made similar statements. And often kings have been subservient to the Roman papacy. Several examples of popes making or breaking kings are discussed in chapter 16 of A Woman Rides the Beast, a book by Dave Hunt. And there are many other sources which can detail occurrences where kings have been subservient to the papacy. With the final defeat of Napoleon and the end of the 1260 years prophesied, the beast became dormant. It had entered the abyss from which it would later ascend as prophesied in Revelation 17 and verse 8. In Revelation 17 and verse 8, it says, the beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit or the abyss it is, as it is in some translations and go to perdition or destruction. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. So this seems to be a contradiction of terms. It's a beast that was and is not and yet is. But goes on to explain, here is the mind which has wisdom, the seven heads or seven mountains on which the woman sits. Now, mountains also are often 
used in scripture as symbolic of kingdoms or nations. And the seven heads, the seven heads representing the Holy Roman Empire, seven mountains or different governments on which the woman sits, a succession of governments. There are also seven kings, five have fallen, one is and the other has not yet come. Kings or kingdoms as it could be. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. And the beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seven and is going to perdition. So this prophecy is, is giving us a, a time setting when five of these kingdoms have appeared and that the kingdom had been in, in, in abeyance and in an abyss, so to speak, and was dormant. And then it had reemerged. So the five that we read about earlier were succeeded by a sixth kingdom, and it wasn't quite like the others in some respects. Italy, which is of course where Rome is, became a unified nation in 1870 after a number of wars, civil wars and so forth, after which time the temporal rule of the popes in Italy was reduced to the Vatican. Before that, they had ruled a considerable part of uh, the area, which we now call Italy. But when Italy became a unified nation, their territory was, was reduced to the Vatican, a small area in the city of Rome. With unification, the Italian government began seeking ways to build an empire and succeeded in gaining territory in North and East Africa and some islands in the Mediterranean. Benito Mussolini became prime minister and dictator of Italy in 1922. He envisioned making Italy into a modern version of the Roman Empire, seeking to aggrandize Italy through conquest. Italy invaded and took control of Ethiopia in 1935. In 1939, Italy invaded and took captive Albania. After Hitler's attack on France, Mussolini entered the war on the side of Germany with visions of taking more territory through conquest. It was during the era of Benito Mussolini and Adolf Hitler when Herbert W. Armstrong first began to understand the prophecies we're discussing. This was at the time that the sixth resurrection of this empire had occurred. In 1929, Mussolini and Pope Pius XI signed the Lateran Treaty. This treaty or this concordat, as it's uh, often referred to, made Roman Catholicism the state religion of Italy. The Vatican was recognized by the Italian government as a sovereign state and reparations were made to the Roman church for seizures of the papal states during the struggle for Italian unification, which had occurred decades earlier. 
The Roman Catholic Church, with its support, helped Mussolini gain power. And this arrangement is summed up in a book called The Vatican and World Politics by Avril Manhattan, where he states the following, quote, thus the church became the religious weapon of the fascist state, while the fascist state became the secular arm of the church. So again, we see church and state working cooperatively, hand in hand, so to speak, the Catholic Church with the dictator of Italy. In 1933, the Catholic Church entered into a concordat with Nazi Germany. As a result of this agreement, the Nazi regime enjoyed popular support among Catholics in Germany and Austria. Now, Hitler himself was nominally a Catholic, although he secretly planned to turn on the church after the war was won, according to some historians. A significant number of Nazi officials were Catholic. However, some German Catholic leaders had the courage to publicly oppose Nazi policies, but they were in the minority. The church backed the, Rome, the German attack on the Soviet Union. The Pope, I think it was Pope Pius XII who was the Pope at that time, never publicly spoke out in opposition to the Holocaust, the persecution of the Jews and others. Although some Catholics individually risked their lives to save Jews from extermination. For their part, Nazis were ambivalent in their relations with the church but often tried to present their public faces not threatening to Catholicism or Christianity. The majority of Germans were Protestant, and most of them also supported the Nazi government, at least up until near the end. There's no doubt, however, based on his words and actions, that although he may have feigned some belief in Catholicism at times, Adolf Hitler was about as hostile to the teachings of the Bible and Christianity as anyone could be. The Nazi fascist empire, which ended with its defeat in World War II, was the sixth of the seven heads of the beast of Revelation 17, on which the woman sat, although the ride was bumpy during that period. During the period of the fascist empire, five had fallen one was, and the final head had not yet appeared. When that resurrection, the seventh of the Roman Empire, does appear, the seventh of the seven heads, it will be acclaimed, and at least for a while, will enjoy popular support among much of the world's population. It will be portrayed as positive and enlightening purporting to embrace all faiths and nations, accompanied by a great religious revival led by the papacy. But it will be an authoritarian government persecuting those of the true faith and in league with the false church, at least for a time. The current pope has repeatedly called for a new world order with a socialist world economy. When this new world order is established, everyone must submit. We read in Revelation 13, 
Revelation 13, beginning with verse 15, he was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. This is speaking of the religious arm of this political religious system. And the image of the beast is, in fact, the church. And uh, the leader of the, the, this church at the time will cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And also, there will be a mark that will be required for anyone to engage in any kind of economic activity. In Revelation 17, beginning in verse 12, now, in, in Revelation 17 are mentioned 10 horns, but these are not the necessarily the same 10 horns that we read about earlier in Daniel 7. This is another set of 10 horns. And it says, beginning with verse 12 of Revelation 17, the 10 horns which you saw are 10 kings who have received no kingdom as yet. Now this is in the context of, of a time period preceding the end of the age, the end of this age. The 10 horns which you saw are 10 kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. In other words, their duration of this kingdom is going to be short, not precisely one hour, but, but it's stated as one hour to indicate that this is going to be a government which will last only a short time. And it says that there will be 10 kings or kingdoms who do not yet exist at the time of this prophecy, the time setting, which is sometime toward the end, but not quite toward the end. But they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. In other words, they are rulers who have authority, but they give, their, they lend their authority to this beast, as it says. And these are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war with the lamb, the lamb being Jesus Christ. He's often referred to as a lamb in the New Testament. These will make war with the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. So this beast empire is going to wind up making war against Jesus Christ and making war against Christ's true disciples. Now parallel with this, we read in Daniel 7, beginning with verse 25. Daniel 7 and verse 25, he, he that is the little horn, shall speak pompous words against the Most High and shall persecute the saints of the Most High and shall intend to ch change times and law. 
Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. Now there actually is a duality to this prophecy. Again, three and a half years. And this occurred, as we saw, from the time of the Justinian Restoration to the time of Napoleon's fall when the church was severely persecuted, the true church, by this false system. Many were slaughtered and killed. Many of the people who were faithful to the word of God. But this is also going to occur again in the future in a period of a literal three and a half years. It goes on to explain the court shall be seated and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. Then, following that, the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom, that is the kingdom of Jesus Christ, is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. So near the time of the end, there will be a union of ten nations or kingdoms within the bounds of the old Roman Empire who will join together under, under a unified government as the final resurrection of the Holy Roman Empire. And it will be of the seven heads, as we read in Daniel 7, but is the eighth, differing in certain respects from all that had gone before. In Revelation 17, verse 16, Revelation 17, verse 16, it says, the 10 horns which you saw on the beast these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. So the civil authority, these 10 kings will in the end turn on the false church and seek to destroy it as Hitler allegedly planned to do. This beast empire, however, will at the end be destroyed. And it, along with the harlot system of the Babylonian religion, will be overcome and destroyed by Jesus Christ at his coming. Now, besides a kingdom, the word beast also refers to its leader, sometimes as we saw earlier and at at the end time this beast leader who's also called the beast will be acclaimed and worshiped in all the world as we read in as we read in revelation 13 and verse 8 it says all who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world People will worship the beast. They will worship this, this uh, leader of that system. They will worship the false prophet who will be the leader of the religious arm of this system. And it says, all who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life. This is going to be a system which will affect the entire world, which will be acclaimed worldwide and worshiped up to near the end of the age. 
And as this age ends and the new age begins with the return of Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us that plagues will be poured out on this great false system which is in rebellion against God while it professes to worship God. All the nations will be gathered in the Middle East with a focal point in Jerusalem to fight Jesus Christ as he returns. And Jesus Christ will defeat them as is detailed in the book of Revelation and Zechariah and elsewhere. He will defeat them, destroying their armies. So we must be alert to developments in the world and be able to see beyond the headlines to where events are leading us as we are informed by the prophecies of God's word. We are living in perilous times and they're going to become more perilous, but we must not fall prey to fear or to deception. Jesus said in John 16, verse 33, John 16, verse 33, these things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Jesus Christ has overcome the world and we have to remain faithful so we can overcome the world too. In Revelation 20 and verse four, Revelation 20 and verse four, it says, I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshiped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years.